Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and the people who annoy us. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going this week, Joe? Oh, pretty good. I'm assuming I'm the annoying one in this episode. <laughs> that's, that's later in the discussion list. I, Joe nice. annoyed me very badly, and it was probably good for me, but we'll get there. Would you believe I built a consulting business off of that? <laughs> You you are very, very annoying, Joe. I, I can see how that would be a, a marketable skill. Yep. Yeah. People pay me a fortune for it. <laughs> so, you know, my uh, app continues to sit on the back burner and not get much attention because I'm working on the project that I'm doing with you and the SOAP API integration and a couple other smaller things. So I just haven't had time to really touch Xcode lately. Although I've still opened it every day, almost always on accident. <laughs> I do that a fair amount. Yeah. Um, so I've been working on... So Dave and I met after the podcast last week and basically talked through the project and tried to drill things into features and then kind of carve up that huge list into small enough chunks to start working on. And I. I'm not sure if pressured is the right word, but I pressed on Dave to start a new project as opposed to the one that he had started last summer. So we made a new repo. We went through the Vue CLI stuff together and configured all the project settings a certain way. And then I used the previous version of the project as kind of a reference or a template and cobbled together things that I needed as I went. So view is kind of broken down into um, views and components. And loosely speaking, a view is like a page, somewhere you go, somewhere you navigate to, and a component are things that can appear on the view. It's It's a little bit more, like there's no really hard and fast rule that you can, you can build your entire system with components with no views at all. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, that's what we're doing. And the app has relatively few views with lots and lots of components. So we're starting with uh, kind of a configuration screen. So like the place that you would first see when you launch the app. Mm -hmm. Select your first DDR, select your second DDR. Dave calculates some statistics on those some data from those EDRs, and then a button to start the diff. And then there's going to be a bunch of additional stuff on that screen that we haven't really worked out yet. Um, and then we go into our main UI, which is a three-panel interface similar to FM Perception for anyone using that now with a basically a list, a table, and a sidebar or an inspector area. Um, and there's lots of different stuff about how we're going to be building those. And it's really that, that middle region that's going to take the most work in this app because that needs to be quite a bit different for certain types of data. So if we're looking at a list of tables versus looking at a list of script steps, there could be some very different data that we're looking at, and particularly how that data is nested inside other objects and how it's related up the chain to things. So it's a bit... It's that whole middle bit is the kind of cloudy, unknown 
a lot to figure out stuff. So yeah, I've been kind of making all of the core views for the app and then adding in some placeholder components and then starting to sketch out some functionality as I went. One of the first things I wanted to do was get a dark mode running. So something, a, a simple way to switch between dark mode and light mode. Um, we'll have some user settings for this and hopefully be able to listen to system level settings. So if somebody toggles their system dark mode on or off, we, sh we should hopefully be able to respond to that and have the app adapt as well. And implementing that is weird, but not terribly difficult. It's weird because of the technology that we're using. So we're working in Vue. We're using a library called Bootstrap View, which is kind of a Vueified version of Bootstrap, which has variants for all kinds of stuff. So you'd have, say, a card layout with a bunch of cards on it, and each of those cards could have a variant, and that variant could be you know, your primary, your secondary, your info, your warning, those regular Bootstrap names that we're used to, but also one for light and dark. And that's pretty much the theming that you get working with Bootstrap View is just swapping out variants. So we needed a way to basically make a, a property in the Vuex store, which is a super weird place, but it's basically like the world's biggest singleton, from what I can tell. <laughs> and uh, we make a property there. Just a Boolean value to toggle true and false. And then we can read that directly, but I don't really want to calculate that every time, every view, and have that calculation on every time, or every view, or every component across the system. So there's a getter in that uh, Vuex store as well that returns the correct variant based on the condition, the current condition, uh, the current uh, Boolean state. So if it's set to true, then it returns the word dark because you pass these variances as strings. And then there's a text variant that is the opposite. So if you're in dark mode, it would pass in white for the text. So that part was relatively straightforward. And then the, the other part that was kind of confusing was the other table system that Dave is using is called AG Grid, agnostic grids, which are some pretty sophisticated data tables that we're working with. And it doesn't really have a way to swap light mode and dark mode other than swapping out the entire style sheet for the entire table. So we're literally just toggling the CSS style sheets when we toggle light mode and dark mode. And that gets us 99% of the app. Everything except for what I thought should be the easiest thing, which would be the background, which proved <laughs> to be the hardest part. <laughs> and uh, still haven't got it working very well, but essentially there is some stuff in the app.view level, so kind of at the top of the hierarchy, that listens for, it, you know, has a computer property that listens for changes to that uh, store level setting and then swaps out the background color of a div object that everything is wrapped inside of. And this is kind of working, but not really. It really only works to fill the viewport. So if we load a window and then we open a collapsible, like an accordion view, and it 
creates a whole bunch of more height in the page. We don't have a background below that. So I still need to figure out how to get that working. But for the most part, it's up and running. I need to do some Googling and maybe ask for some help. But I did not think that would be the hard part. I thought AG Grid would be the hard part. That was actually the easiest of the three. This is actually one of the parts that's really satisfying about working with somebody else, is I hear mm-hmm. that and I know it would drive me nuts and I'd spend a bunch of time pounding on it, and now I don't have to. There's somebody else's problem that gets to deal with that. Yeah, exactly. It's really, really nice. So I've been, I've been thinking about the Vuex store and just how weird it is. And the way that I can describe it, have you ever been like messing around maybe with your entertainment console and you're you're reaching behind to unplug something and then you want to try to hand that to your other hand but you have to go around the TV and try to hand it to yourself that way that's what it feels like working with UX like, <laughs> I'm passing these values to myself but I'm kind of reaching really awkwardly behind some other stuff and uh to get it out the other side it's it's got some code overhead but I've made peace with it. Mm-hmm. And in my head, the way I think of it is as an enforced structure for a data separation model. Mm-hmm. All the data gets stored here. And there are specific ways to access it cleanly so that nothing ever goes wrong. And if you do those things in the right way, cleanly, it handles all the updates for you, which resolves a ton of other problems. But having it be the enforced data separation model makes, A, the code a ton cleaner. I mean, you're adding overhead to code in this one weird part, but everything else gets super simplified. Um, And so I, I really like it, but it took a little while to make peace with how it thought about the problem. Mm. Yeah. I guess some of my questions about it, I just haven't even spent time Googling this yet, but can we have multiple stores? Yep. Like, can we have multiple namespace stores? Like, have one for the file provider and one for the configuration screen and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Do they all have to be in this one massive file? No. And then, in addition to that, like, the properties that are inside the store, so we've got one for state, one for computed properties, one for mutations, one for getters. Do we have to define those things in those objects, or can we define them somewhere else and just reference them there? I think that they're that even effectively properties of the store. No, I, I mean, I don't mean defining the entire property somewhere else. I mean the content inside it. So if you go look at the state object, and I've got my progress indicators object inside mm-hmm. that, can I define progress indicators somewhere else and then just reference it in there? Or does it have to be defined there? That's an interesting question. You can probably inject things Mm -hmm. from elsewhere, but I don't know what happens if that maintains the ability to have the notification sent out when one of those properties changes. Yeah. I'm not I'm not really talking about injecting, I'm talking much more from like an object oriented standpoint can i just define my you know dark mode settings class or enum or whatever i want it to be 
and then have an instance of it in the state rather than having all the logic. Oh. In there. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It it does it does end up a little messy in there. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty weird stuff. It's, it's also really powerful. It makes me like SwiftUI has something called the environment that is kind of a a black hole version of this. Like it offers similar functionality, but there's no way to just navigate, like pull up the Xcode panel of the environment and see everything in there. As far as I know, mm-hmm. um, which would be nice, but I have not figured out how to do that. But I guess that's the the other side of this. Everything in one place being cumbersome is also everything is in one place, and I know exactly where to look for it. So that's yeah, it's pretty it's pretty interesting. So you know, we spent the early part of the week. I guess the fortnight setting up the views and then starting to work on some of the components and then without really making an effort i think i mostly reproduced the functionality of the legacy app basically because of the the es linter that we're using when i would bring in another component from the previous version and it would bark at me that I'm missing a dependency, and then that dependency was missing a dependency, and that dependency was missing a dependency. I ended up tracking down quite a bit of the stuff that I needed, <laughs> you know, basically just keeping the app in a state that it was running without console errors. And then Dave decided to take over this weekend and actually get it working. So what I had at the end of last week was a non-functioning version where you can navigate categories, use a button to inject some sample data that. Dave provided, and then tap on one of those items to view content in the inspector. And then Dave had to actually do all the work to make those things communicate together and load data from the store, which is loading it from the C-sharp backend. So why don't you tell us how that went? Cool. After the, after the podcast, so from last week's episode, while we were talking, I realized that I had made a big mistake in my linking code. Mm. Um, this was that thing where I was talking about the the different kinds of looping through all the items to try and find associated items. The first one was really slow because it would loop through all the items in the old data or the original data and then for each one loop through every single one of the items in the modified data looking for something to link up with. And so it was kind of a geometric performance hit, the larger the uh, XML, the slower and slower it was going to get at a dramatic rate based as the size increased. So the next version was really fast um, and it would go through each item. And then instead of looping through every item, it could just run out to a set of dictionaries, form a connection really quickly. And if it didn't form a connection with the most With the tightest link, it would try successively less and less accurate links until it found something to link up with, which sounded like a great idea and ends up being terrible. Um, The best metaphor I can think of is if you're thinking of trying to connect people between two lists. So I go, hey, I've got a Bob. Do I have a Bob over there? And if I have a Bob, great. And then I go, I have John. Do I have John over there? I don't have John. Okay, 
uh, do I have men with brown hair? Yes. Hey, look, it's Mike. I must have renamed John to Mike, which is fine, except for the fact that further down in the original list is a Mike that should have gotten that and now won't because that one's been stolen by John. So actually what I need to do is four loops. I have to try and connect everybody on the most precise linking first. Wait, the number four loops, not... Yes, the number four loops. There's four, four different, loops. different passes. Um, so I have to try and link everybody in the tightest way possible and then mm -hmm. go through the people that didn't link and try them at the next lowest level of accuracy. And then the next lower level and the next lower level until everybody's as linked as they can get. But that's, that's a heck of a lot like the way version one worked. But I stole the dictionaries from version two. Mm. So what it means is uh, accessing something in a dictionary, if you've got a key, is very, 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 very fast. Yeah. Very fast. And so I restructured the code a little bit built these four dictionaries about what was in the modified uh, uh, XML and then ran through the original stuff in four passes. Way faster. Sick fast. And doesn't lose the precision by being overly permissive. So, yay! <laughs> um, and then... I started seeing commit messages from Joe, um, putting stuff into the new repo, and that freaked me the hell out. <laughs> um, and I can fret like nobody else I know. And the problem is that the original integration, making it so that the, the web view and the JavaScript or the, the C sharp backend <clears throat> could talk to each other quickly and efficiently and not drop messages. It took a lot of work. Mm -hmm. um, I was working with a lot of technologies I wasn't familiar with and I had to jump through a bunch of hoops and Joe just threw all of that code out and started over. As you do. <clears throat> but only started over on half of it. So I had the back side of the connection, but the front side of the connection was completely busted. And I spent a disappointing quantity of time just sitting there freaking out about trying to make this work again and how difficult it was going to be. But fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, Dune reference. Mm -hmm. Um... So, as Joe was saying, as he was building things, he had to keep adding dependencies to make the code that he was bringing over work. And in the process, he brought over almost everything I needed. So it was in the right places with the right stuff available. And so it took a little while. I, I had to bring over a couple little pieces of code and a couple little chunks. And about four hours later, I was done. So spending a week and a half freaking out <laughs> over something that in the end took four hours not a good use of my time. Um, Sounds about right, though. 
But you you have no idea how long this is going to take. I've said to every boss ever. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm I'm still getting comfortable with working collaboratively. These kinds of projects, I've I haven't worked collaboratively with anybody in years, and mm-hmm. certainly not on these kinds of things. I I had a good working relationship with some people around FileMaker development where I could hand off a thing with a clear set of tasks and it would come back done and well. But even that wasn't comfortable at the very beginning, but that was two decades ago. Mm -hmm. So, and then this is the first one that I've done where there was version control. So I'm getting email notifications when somebody else is screwing with my project. And you might, you might want to turn those off. <laughs> I, yeah, maybe <laughs> that, that might be a good idea. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just trying to get comfortable with this and I'm getting more comfortable with it and that's good. And in the end, I think it's going to make me a better developer and get me out of my own little bubble. But last week and the week before very very stressful sorry about that that overwhelming i very specific i considered a couple of times contacting you and going hey what the heck's going on um the one thing i would like to do do not misinterpret this as keeping a time clock Mm -hmm. um i you work in the morning And Mm -hmm. sometimes I'm up during the morning and you would ask questions and I would respond to try and keep you on track. Mm -hmm. And it would be helpful if I knew when you were like, I'm not sending any more questions today. Okay. You don't, you don't have to commit any of your brain capacity to worrying about whether Joe has a question anymore today. I think it's the other way around. The questions that I ask are not something that I need an answer to during that time that I'm working on that. That's mostly chucking stuff out there for the next day or the next couple of days. Okay. Like as I'm going through, like here's a problem that we ask, put, put this up for discussion, put a pin in it and move on to the next thing. It's the way that I'm used to working. So don't see, if you see something come through at seven o'clock in the morning and you're up at seven o'clock in the morning, that doesn't mean that I need it to be answered by eight. Right. Or see- like, in the next couple of days. I'm used to coding in a way where I've like, I've got the problem space loaded in my head. Mm-hmm. And so if I can get the answer right now, I haven't lost the problem space. I don't have to reload any of that. And so an answer right now is five times as effective as an answer the next day. But that's me. And I guess if it helps, like by the, by the time 10 a.m. rolls around, I'm pretty much done with development in general. Like, you, you'll very rarely see me ask something after that time. Because mm-hmm. I'm moving on to other stuff. But. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it'd also probably help if I turn off the email notifications so that I don't even know you're working on it until a question pops up. Yeah, just log in and see if there are discussion topics that are outstanding. Right. Um, and then Joe had a really, really cool idea. Just, just sick cool. Um, 
And so the interface is all running in a little browser window. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that that interface is in its kind of compiled version sitting in the application bundle where FM comparison goes and loads it. And eventually, that's where we want it to be. But in the short term, that makes the development cycle slower when you're working on the interface. And working with a lot of the modern tools has some really neat stuff, these live server technologies, where if you modify the JavaScript or HTML code for the page, as soon as you hit save, your browser window updates. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes kind of development cycles really, really fast. It's, it's gorgeous technology. The problem is you can't do that in the application, and the application is using a slightly altered browser from the other things. And so being able to see it in its final version as it will look in FM comparison is slow. You got to build this thing and then stick it in the right folder. And even if you make that like a terminal command, you're still going, okay, run this thing. Now relaunch the application. So here's the thing. That's just a browser window. So Joe Mm -hmm. goes, well, why don't we just load the live server in that? And it took about 10 minutes of round and round and round before I realized how tight he wanted to make this. It's like, hey, it's just loading a local file. It could just point to a web server that's a local web server. That should work. And so I pop in there. I'm like, hey, there's like three lines of code I have to modify. This won't be a problem. Turns out, big honking problem. <laughs> um, first problem is um, there's a URL policy handler in the WK web view. Mm-hmm. And that allows you to manipulate what happens if you click certain kinds of links. Okay. Now remember, this is for a browser that's actually inside an application, not a Safari window or a Chrome window, but inside an application, and I'm just using HTML to render some content on a page. And so, for example, uh, uh, FM Perception has something like this. There's a couple of the pieces of help documentation in FM Perception that actually contain URLs. And I don't want those URLs to be loaded in FM Perception. Mm. When I click that URL, I want it to jump out to the external browser. But it might be a URL that's internal linking in FM Perception. And when it sees that kind of URL, it should actually change the content of the current page. And so I had one of these set up for FM comparison so that any of these view links would stay within the application. But if you actually had an HTTP or HTTPS link, it would open it in the external browser. And so once I got the code changed so that it would actually load from a file URL versus an HTTP URL, you would run the application and Safari would open and load the app. So not helpful. And so putting in switches on the URL policy handler so that when we're in developer mode, it will allow HTTP links to load in that browser rather than passing them off externally. So that was problem two. Uh, prob- or actually, 
Well, yeah, technically problem two. One, changing the code for a file to HTTP URL. Mm -hmm. Problem three, app transport security. The live server is not SSL-based. So it's an HTTP link, not an HTTPS link. And applications which load external web resources have to have basically an allowed list of places that it's allowed to go so that you can't hack the things. So, figure out that stuff, modify app transport security, and it turns out there's some really nice documentation on cool stuff that you can do that only works in iOS. Of course. And doesn't seem to work on macOS. So, tweak that, and then it's still broken. Why is it broken? Well, as part of the testing, I thought, for some reason, this server isn't serving what's actually going on. So I killed the server and started another one. And when I did that, it loaded a new web server on a different port. So now my URL is bad. I'm looking on localhost colon 8080, and now the server's moved over to localhost colon 8081. Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> Yeah, that can just happen when you're running multiple projects. Yeah. So if you've got another VS Code window running. <clears throat> so a later version is going to have the ability to kind of pick the URL live. But right now, it does successfully load the live app and then integrate with the C-sharp backend all in the browser window. Yeah, and which even is wild. Better. All that C-sharp integration works. So it's loading a web page off of a web server and then responding to JavaScript links on those pages to local code running in the back end of the application. And that's cool as hell. Mm -hmm. And it took a while to even figure out why it works. And it has to do with the way those JavaScript commands are sent. When C-sharp sends a JavaScript command to the browser, it effectively sends that JavaScript command to the browser window itself. The browser thing. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> when you load the JavaScript, I have to create listeners for those JavaScript commands. But the code that I'm using to create those listeners doesn't say just go up to your parent or something like that. It finds the window and adds the listener. Which means that when you're running the live server, the live server kind of wraps everything in its own little code so it can do the updates and push those things. But when you load my code, it creates a little link that bridges across the live server wrapper down to where the code actually needs to run. And so it just worked. Live update works. The app integration with the C-sharp works. And even doing the live update doesn't break those links. Which is sweet. Yeah. I, I went from really, really frustrated while working on that to disgustingly ecstatic. <laughs> like, it's just cool. Yeah. Really, all I had asked for was, like, can you make me a version of the browser that runs in the app Chrome so that I can see things formatted in the same way as the destination app? But what Dave came back with was a fully working live updating version of the app, which is pretty sweet. So I can literally just, you know, on a page, add a button, give it a name, give it a behavior, hit save, and then it shows up on the view without me, like the browser doesn't refresh, that specific component refreshes and updates. So if I'm 
you know, several clicks into the hierarchy looking at the details of something, I don't have to renavigate all of that. It knows where I am and refreshes. So yeah, the whole live update stuff is really neat. Yeah. Um, so that's cool. And now we come to the part where Joe, Joe annoyed the hell out of me. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to characterize your comments and you can let me know if I miss. Okay. But Joe expressed a personal, um, not so much a truism, but let's call it a guiding principle of UI design that I would express as if the interface doesn't fit in the UI and I constantly have to manipulate the Chrome of the interface to see my data, I have failed as a UI designer. Is that a decent characterization? Yeah. Okay. That was, a, that was kind of in reference to, we were talking about the sliding split view. Like we've got this three panel interface and in if you're looking at it in full screen on a 27 inch display, you can see all of everything all the time. But in any other circumstance, you're constantly swiping, particularly scrolling horizontally, which a lot of people can't even do if they just have a regular mouse. Um, so you end up grabbing a scroll bar to scroll horizontally and then, you know, constantly resizing, pulling over the split view for the inspector region to be able to actually see the data in a readable format and then pulling it back over when you're done. So it felt like, to me, it felt like a lot of work to, you know, a traditional FileMaker system with a list view and a detail view where you click on an item and list and it goes to the detail view. We don't have that. We have a master-master detail, but our detail isn't very convenient and needs to constantly be resized. So I was kind of expressing my frustration with that. Yeah. Um, and me and FM Perception felt attacked. Mm -hmm. um, and I've spent a large chunk of the last 24 hours with that stuff flipping over and over in my head. And I think it's justified. It, it took me a little while to get there. And simultaneously going like, okay, but even if it's justified, it doesn't matter if there's no way to make it work. Like, if this is the best possible option, then it doesn't matter if it's a bad option. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is a thing where, like, I, at some level, I think that when I started this, I was thinking from the perspective of FM perception and simultaneously thinking of this as a test bed for UI concepts for the next major version of FM perception. Mm -hmm. And so that plus the work that I'd already done on the beta just ended up creating this way of thinking about the problem that I couldn't break out of, which, as I've previously stated, is one of the things that I specifically brought you on to help with. Mm -hmm. But I was not in a position to hear what you said before and go, oh, okay, that's a good idea. <laughs> um, I definitely had to go away and think about that for a while. And really start looking at what the data is that we're trying to display in FM comparison and how even at the micro level for individual little display components, 
how the needs of the two applications are different. Not just overall workflow, mm-hmm. but that like the the list display has different user requirements just for looking at a list. As an example, one of the things that I love about FM Perception is the ability to sort on any column at any time because scrolling through a tabled list is very good for finding deviations from the pattern. Mm-hmm. If you if you group everything together by field type, you will notice that you've got a global field with the wrong kind of naming convention. It just yeah. it jumps out at you once you've got these things organized in this way. I've got a date field with the wrong kind of naming convention. All I need is sort by this and then look through the names and boom, it just pops out at you. But the thing is, diff doesn't need that. You aren't looking for deviations. It's more about understanding what the changes were and how to then proceed from there. <laughs> um, digging into it, I think I've got an idea that may actually destroy the second and third panes. Okay. And end up with effectively one pane there. And it's almost like an earlier idea that you had about putting some of the detailed data in the table as kind of a an expandable table row. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like the way those look in a table. But if it's not in a table anymore, if it's just a list of, like, view components, a list of, of cards of changes, this changed mm-hmm. this way, this changed this way, as a big block, maybe with the ability to collapse or not, I'm not sure. Um, we don't really need the sidebar at all anymore if we're fitting most of that data back into the core card. Mm-hmm. Um, it also gives you a kind of a smoother sense of context while you're doing that. Well, also keep in mind that the the view that you didn't like was in AG Grid, which had an expandable mm-hmm. detail feature, mm-hmm. which isn't even available in our version. It's in the paid version, but it does look pretty clunky. The Bootstrap View Table also has a feature similar to that, and it looks much much nicer. So we could have a nice list view. It's technically an HTML table, but it could be formatted like a nice list view with, you know, still the concept of columns to line things up, but not necessarily the the grid-looking columns from AG Grid. And then you could tap on one of those rows or hit the space key when you're arrowing through them to open that and expand it below. So basically, it could treat that entire list view like an accordion um, and open that content right there. So that's that's a possibility. I think I'll have to show you some of the styles to see if you like the way they look. Yeah, I, I, I've got to get some sketches in front of you, even just rough pencil stuff, because mm-hmm. I'm thinking about going even a little further than that. Um, but it also resolves, if you think of it as like a list of cards, mm-hmm. just a, as a concept, it resolves one of my biggest problems with looking at this is when you're in FM perception and you've got the list and you click on an item in the list, I can show you additional information off to the right. And sometimes that's very helpful, but 
most of the time, the data that you want is actually already in the table. Whereas when we're talking about changes to a group of field objects or a group of script steps, the changes are the most important element. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that you have to then click once again to select a single item just to see what changed is less helpful. And so I've, I've got some ideas that we'll have to talk about, but I, I think that we may be able to get away from that entirely and say, the items that you added, here's a list of them. The items you deleted, here's a list of them. But the items that you modified, let's actually put the modifications right in front of you. Um, which, not just for interface display, but actually user understanding of what's going on, I think mm -hmm. will work a lot better than anything we've substantively played with. Like I said, I, I know you were poking at this concept earlier, and I still wasn't in a brain space to be able to get where you were going or to see it. And the expression of your guiding principle set up a little cognitive dissonance thing in my brain that bounced around for 24 hours. And now I think I understand where you're going with that. Once again, the fun of working collaboratively with somebody else. Yeah, there's some, there's some good ideas to try to flesh out there. Another totally, I guess, the almost the exact opposite mm -hmm. idea of what we just talked about would be basically deprioritizing that middle column into just a list. It could be a single, you know, a much smaller column. Right now it takes up like, you know, at least half of the interface. Yeah. Maybe reduce that down to 20 or 30%. And that is just a list of changes, maybe a little tag to show if it's an edit or a creation or a deletion. And the name of the change and then maybe something on the right to indicate whether or not you've dealt with that. And then everything else in the detail. So right now, we, in that middle mm -hmm. table, we've got change type, ID, name, name to, parent ID, name of the parent, source file, correction notes, probably <laughs> some more fields. What I was suggesting with this option is to get rid of all of that. Right. We have the change type, we have the name, and then maybe the correction note pulled off to the right anchored to the right, and then everything else goes into the detail view, and the detail view becomes a much more prominent portion of the app. If you want to see what I'm getting at, look at the mail app in macOS, or particularly the notes app, where you've got a list of folders in the sidebar, and then a list of notes in the main region, and then most of the app is dedicated to the editor region, which in this case would be our detail or our inspector area. I mean, this this idea comes out of an extension we we talked about yesterday, which was you know making the sidebar more dynamic. So right now we've got a a rather chunky list with you know six columns crammed together, but Dave suggested if we resize that column all the way over, maybe it it could collapse down to just a list of icons, with nothing else, just the icons themselves. The users would kind of remember what those icons are, and then expand it a little bit to have the icons and the name of the category, or maybe the icons and a count of how many changes were in that category. It expanded all the way out to get back to you know, the, the columns with the various totals side by side. So this idea came out of that idea of like reducing that 
list view as we size it down to just the smallest number of data points that it needs to be relevant so the user can tell, like find what they're looking for quickly, identify the changes visually with those different change type tags, but then keep everything else in the in the detail area. Yeah. You you can tell from FM perception that I have a a first pass bias towards giving the user as much data as is humanly possible. Yes. <laughs> and I I'm 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 trying very hard not to think about what this might mean for FM perception. Mm-hmm. And just keeping it about FM comparison. Which is so hard. So difficult. But I I yeah, I I think we want to poke at this some more, but um yeah, I'm I'm kind of psyched about how it could look and how it could be cleaner and there's actually some add-on effects that I've got floating in my head for things like document creation if you wanted to spit out this diff into a, you know, 150-page PDF, that being a cleaner thing because of the way we build these interface elements. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, and actually, the combination of those two ideas, I think, could be really cool. Yeah. Oh, great. Thanks, Joe. Really? <laughs> okay. Maybe well, I don't fully appreciate it, but I think the eventual users of the application are very much going to appreciate your contribution here. <laughs> Jerk. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> which, funnily enough, transitions very nicely to your next topic. Mm, I think that was my next topic. <laughs> Joe's got it here in the notes is how to arrive at a simple design in the most roundabout way. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was my vote for, you know, episode title, <laughs> but yeah, I think we're going to have to go with fretting and integration. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that, that line was basically just a clarification for your benefit of, you know, as we're having the meeting yesterday, as we had the meeting a couple weeks ago, I'm asking all kinds of questions and some of them are stupid questions. And, you know, Dave, like, like what, I'll ask them like, well, why can't we just do this? And Dave will have already thought of five or six business cases, why that solution was too simple and we needed to do something else. And those questions, particularly because I'm used to dealing with people who are almost entirely non-technical in my consulting business, those questions are designed to get people to give me all of that information. So I'm not always necessarily asking a a stupid question because I'm stupid, but I'm asking a stupid question because I want you to articulate everything about why we're doing the thing that we're doing. And I do that to myself because I don't necessarily talk to myself during development. I type to myself a lot, but I will, rather than go for the most simple design for something, as you can tell from all of the talking about retrospective timelines, I tend to go for the most complicated, (laughs) crazy, cumbersome, advanced way of doing things, start implementing it, hate it so much that I force myself to do something simpler. (laughs) Yeah. So a lot of my best designs have come out of like, just laziness, like, this other thing that could be really, really cool is just going to be such a pain in the butt to do. Yeah. And, and I, I think 
th- there's two major areas that have hurt me. One is having done so much work on FM perception. Mm-hmm. And with that, this is effectively like the third version of FM comparison for all intents and purposes that we're working mm-hmm. on now. And so the overhead of all of that design thought putting me into specific design patterns that my brain has started to think of as written in stone Mm -hmm. and stepping back and going, okay, these three elements are written in stone, but these other ones, even though they're vaguely associated with those are not, these are still really malleable and, and getting that. Um, and then the other piece is to a certain degree, my own time as a consultant. And so like, I, I hear some of your questions and in the back of my head, I know that they're like, okay, do you really understand what you're talking about? And my brain goes, yes, I thought about this a ton. Doesn't mean I have the right answer. Just means I have an answer. Mm -hmm. And no matter how rigid that answer is, it may still not be the right answer, which I, as a consultant, would spend a lot of time with people poking at, you know, seeing their assumptions and poking at those assumptions. But it turns out I'm really bad at doing that to myself. Yeah. (laughs) Really, really bad. So, yay collaboration. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast again, because I'm also really bad at that with myself. And I get that benefit from talking over problems with you and the best way to make sure I had a reliable scheduled event to talk to you was to you know make you publicly accountable to the internet for those (laughs) calendar appointments (laughs) so this whole podcast was a trap Cool. I I think that was a really good episode. Yeah. Who knew that working on the same thing would actually make the conversation interesting? I'm going to stop recording. Okay. Uh, God damn it. I'm, I'm getting pissed off at this uh, Logitech mouse.